Hello, my oral surgery friends. This is your host, Dr. Grant Stuckey. In this podcast, you will hear surgeons discussing ways to improve the practice of oral and maxillofacial surgery. The goal of this podcast is to evaluate every aspect that a surgeon can improve in order to create a better experience for patients, staff, and the surgeon. Most of the information shared in this podcast will be based on personal experience and opinions. The methods discussed are meant to provoke thought and should be supplemented with research into the approved studies prior to making changes to one's way of practice. Without further ado, please enjoy this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. All right, welcome to another episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. This is Dr. Grant Stuckey. Today I'm joined by Dr. Jake Stuckey. He is an oral and maxillofacial surgeon in residency at Cleveland, Ohio. He's also my brother. Jake, thank you for being on the program today. Yep, I'm glad to be back. Excellent. So we have a great episode today. We're discussing a little bit about suturing. We're going to try to do some of these educational, more focused topics once a month or twice a month potentially for our listeners out there. So just kind of something extra we'll be doing. Before we get started today, I wanted to discuss a little bit about our social media presence. We started just a couple of weeks ago. We are now on Instagram and Facebook. So we really appreciate all of our listeners going out there and following us, reading the posts, because we add a little bit extra information on our posts. And it'd be good just to also get some feedback on our episodes from our listeners. Hear what you like, what you didn't like. It's a good way to kind of help us to refine our podcasts as time goes on here. Anything else you'd like to say about that, Jake? No, just that, you know, we appreciate everyone who's liked our stuff and commented and shared on their the experiences that they've had while listening to the podcast. Uh, it's been pretty cool just to see all the different, you know, people across the nation send us messages and, and respond. And it's super helpful to kind of give us ideas for what to talk about. And also just to expect maybe some more stories and some more, I don't know, we're just going to try to involve people a little bit more, get some feedback. So, you know, we would appreciate if anyone sends us a message and reaches out. We'll do our best to get back to you as soon as possible. Excellent. Sounds great. So we will jump in today. We are talking about suturing and we wanted to kind of touch on more of the basic suturing stuff that we do as oral and maxillofacial surgeons on a daily basis, techniques, reasons for suturing, types of suture, stuff like that. So basically, we're going to jump into the, the first question of why do we suture? How would you answer that one, Jake? All right. Well, I would say that, you know, when we do surgery anywhere on the body, but especially in the mouth, we, you know, we make, we, we use the scalpel to make cuts, we reflect tissue, and, you know, so we can visualize and do our surgery. But when we're done, you know, we need to put that back in such a way that it's going to heal as best as possible, right? So it's that concept of, you know, attaining primary, you know, closure is always best because you're basically putting the tissue back as close as it needs to be and it it heals a small amount versus if you were to leave it wide open, it would take much longer to heal potentially. For me, that's one of the reasons why we suture is just to help with healing. Another reason why we can suture is to minimize bleeding, to put some pressure on the wound. You know, if it's a patient who has a high risk of bleeding, you know, someone comes in. When I was at the VA here in my residency, I'd say at least half of our patients I would consider a high risk of bleeding. So we sutured a lot more of those cases than we, you know, otherwise would have on like a young, you know, healthy patient just to minimize the, you know, risk of bleeding. 
And then sometimes we suture just to hold things in place, you know, whether it's, you know, a membrane we put in there, whether it's some gel foam or a or drain or something else. So it does have a couple of different purposes. Yep. I agree with all of those for sure. You know, I think when we're talking about third molar surgery, even just through this podcast, we've heard a large variety of ways to suture. Some people are doing one single interrupted chromic suture. You know, other people are doing a figure eight and really cinching up everything tight. Other people are not suturing at all. So there's a lot of different things that can be done. Luckily, in the third molar region, it seems like the vast majority of things work and do fine. Even not suturing seems to work. Personally, I usually do the one single interrupted chromic kind of at the corner of the flap just to cinch it on the distal of that second molar right behind it. My reason for doing that is, I think like you alluded to, is pressure on the wound, but also just to try to get that tissue close to where it was before. I do think leaving some of it, a portion of it open to drain and be more cleansable seems to make sense for me. But doing a loose suture, as some people have talked about on our podcast before, does lead sometimes also to debris getting into the, the wound there. Yeah, what have you seen? It sounds like it's a bit of a compromise, though, because you want you want to bring the tissue together so it can heal. But you also don't want to, like, seal up any gunk in there, you know, loose bone, which could potentially cause an infection, right? So I was looking at this because I have seen a lot of different ways. And so I just wanted to know what the literature says about it. And I found a couple articles, you know, I'm sure there's a bunch out there. Um, but I was kind of looking in the last couple of years. And what I saw was that, you know, they compared not suturing the lowers at all versus just putting one suture. And then there was a different study that compared doing one versus multiple, just to kind of get that whole spectrum. And both studies basically concluded that doing one suture had the best outcome in their studies. So I thought that was interesting knowing that, you know, placing one oftentimes is enough. And then maybe educating the patient on how to rinse and keep it clean is going to be sufficient in most cases. And then in regards to mandibular versus maxillary third molar sites, I personally just suture the lower or the mandibular sites, 1732, routinely, you know, for full bony impacted teeth. And it's probably maybe only 5% of the time to a suture an upper or a maxillary, mostly because in my mind that tissue, you know, falls into place on its own and I'm trying to eliminate one more source of inflammation. And so I just don't see the need for the suture. But again, I have talked to many surgeons who do routinely suture all their maxillary sites. What have you seen done there at Case Western and what do you do? Yeah, I mean, most of the time for maxillary third molars, it seems like we don't tend to put a suture as long as the flap wasn't, you know, really large and the tissue isn't, you know, just hanging there loose. If it's like a partially erupted tooth or fully erupted, you know, 99% of the time, it seems like the tissue is nice and tight right there. So we tend to not do one. You know, special circumstances where we might is if, you know, there's a sinus exposure, a larger sinus exposure, we'd want to close that up and maybe advance a little flap, something like that. We would for sure suture and get primary closure. But other than that, for the maxillaries, we tend not to. And I haven't seen any issues with those. Sounds pretty similar to my experience. Let's talk a little bit about types of suture, and then we can talk a little bit more about the technique of suturing. So yeah, what types of suture have, have you worked with and what applies to what? Well, I mean, I feel like the textbook answer, you kind of break it down to like different types, of, like categories of sutures. There's 
natural sutures and synthetic. There's resorbable, non-resorbable, you know, monofilament braided. But in my mind, it kind of comes down to like the two main ones for me is does it resorb or not? And then basically finding a suture that's going to stay in place. So some of the common ones, obviously, you know, most of our listeners, you know, have sutured many times before. I know that we oftentimes use chromic sutures. Those are resorbable monofilaments. You know, they're great for situations where, you know, it only needs to be held tight, closed for maybe a week or so. Since they don't last quite as long, they do resorb. But that's a benefit as well because, you know, you don't have to go back in and, and remove them when most of the patients are going to heal just fine. And then, you know, there's Vicryl, which is also a resorbable suture braided. So that lasts a bit longer. I feel like I tend to use Vicryl less, quite a bit less than Chromic. But, you know, I'm still trying to figure out if there's a really good time to use it or not when it comes to oral surgery, at least from what I've done so far. Have you had, you know, times where you really feel like you should use something that lasts a lot longer, but it's still resorbable? Yeah, there's definitely been some times, I think, in the past, I was using Vicro a lot more for those full mouth extraction cases where, you know, I was thinking I needed to have suture lasting there for three to four weeks. An interesting thing I found with Vicro pretty consistently was that it was causing pain, you know, generally around that third or fourth week mark. Maybe even after the second week, I was getting a lot of patients coming back and saying, gosh, your suture's really hurting and it's aching and things like that. And so that was something which is more anecdotal that I experienced. And so I kind of stopped using Vicryl in those scenarios. And generally, really, Chromic is what I'm using more. And if I want something to last longer, I usually kind of move to nylon or something else that I will have to remove later on. Right. Okay. That's good to know. Like you mentioned, there's a couple different, you know, non-resorbable sutures as well, which are common. You got silk, which is kind of like the classic one. And then nylon, PTFE, some of the ones that we might use a little bit more frequently. I think when it comes to the non-resorbable sutures, we use them a lot less frequently. I mean, I guess depending on what kind of surgery you're doing. If you were doing, in my mind, something like a bone graft or, you know, membranes and something that you'd want to be closed primarily and hold it closed and make sure that that wasn't going to dehiss as best as you could, you'd probably want to use something non-resorbable that would not accumulate a lot of bacteria, something like PTFE. Now, having said that, I personally haven't used a ton of PTFE. I just read about it. So that's something that I want to get more experience with. Yeah, for sure. I definitely use you know PTFE and mono, other types of monofilament, non-resorbable sutures for bone grafts and implants. I think not routinely, but in patients where it's maybe multiple implants or bigger bone grafts, I definitely use it for the patient who says, I have a history of having a reaction to sutures, you know, and every time I, they put a suture, like three or four days later, it busts open and my gums get super flared up. And so those are things where, you know, I'm asking questions to try to dig that information out. Have you had sutures before? Or have you had any reactions? Because I really do think there are people who are more sensitive to sutures that cause inflammation and just aren't great candidates for those. And so that's when I think it's really helpful to use a non-resorbable monofilament just so you avoid all of that and you kind of get a nice healing and just basically removing all that insult to the tissue that the suture might do. I know the PTFE from what I've heard is quite a bit more expensive than silk. So if there's a time to use silk, I'm just thinking maybe when you're like placing a drain 
something that isn't necessarily going to get more infected like a bone graft, you could use silk there. I was reading that basically since silk is braided, it wicks up the material, the, the saliva, and can essentially create a place where the bacteria hang out, which is not great if you're trying to have something heal. One of the studies I saw said something to the effect of over 22% more you know, bacteria was found on silk sutures versus other type of non-resorbable monofilament sutures, which I don't know if that's necessarily like clinically significant, but it's just something to consider, I guess. Yeah, I think a lot of guys will and gals will say that in their residency, silk is the go-to for attaching a drain or putting the exposum bond chain to the arch wire. And I think that is the case because one, it's cheap. Two, it doesn't come undone. It's very tight. You know, when you do silk, it's like just super gritty and it just locks into place. And that's what you want when you're putting, you know, your exposing bond chain onto the arch wire. You don't want your Penrose drain coming out, things like that. I don't know how I could forget the silk and the exposing bond. There was more than one time as an intern that I forgot to grab that particular suture and was reminded very firmly that that shouldn't happen again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I'm not entirely sure why it's just become, it's got to be silk. You know, and if it's not silk, it's like the whole world's going to end if you don't put the gold chain onto the arch wire. One of our guests in the past talked about using ligature wire to attach the gold chain to the arch wire. Oh, that's right. Alpha Amazon, right? Like a super saver. Yep. And so, I mean, that works great for him. So I don't think silk is the end all be all in, you know, attaching the gold chain, but certainly it works and is a good alternative. Let's see. So, and then in regards to doing, you know, skin type things, of course, that's when we're pretty much, well, I shouldn't say pretty much, but frequently we're going to be using the monofilament non-resorbable nylon, some of our other types of sutures. Right. Because if you can get it to, I mean, if you keep it in the right amount of time, it'll hold the, I mean, less inflammation, it'll hold the tissue together well, but you just have to be careful to take it out soon enough that you don't cause any scarring, right? Exactly. I find that like most of the patients that I see in the ED, it's kind of a different scenario. Even talking with some of like the plastics residents I work with and the other oral surgery residents at different schools, it seems like a lot of us will close the skin with like 5.0 fast gut you know, some sort of fast gut just because, you know, it's hard to know if the, the patients are going to follow up. Oftentimes, they just straight up tell you, no, no, no I'm not coming in. I got to get these out. Yeah, right, man. Or, you know, they might be in the hospital for a long time on some other sort of service, whatever it may be. Sometimes it's more convenient to use fast gut. And in those scenarios, I also haven't seen any like issues with healing um, for the most part. Yeah, I was going to bring that up as well, that when you're doing things on the skin, there's, you know, certain scenarios you want to be aware of. Let's say you're doing a face lack on someone who has kind of a beard or some beard tissue. Usually we would go to proline in those situations where it's a blue suture and is easier to see as opposed to nylon that kind of camouflages in there and you can't really see what's going on. And then certainly, like you're saying, any patient that is not going to follow up or patient who's going to have a hard time with removal of the suture that's when you'd want to use a plain gut, you know, like a fast absorbing type of a gut. I had an experience in residency where I went to the ED and, you know, I was treating a young person who had severe autism for a face lack. 
And we, so we gave it some sedation in the ED and I put in some non-resorbable suture. And I always remember afterward, you know, talking to my attending about it. And my attending was like, wait, you put a non-resorbable suture on someone with severe autism that's a kid, you know, and he, he just wanted to slap my face because it's like, now we've got to take those sutures out. Do you realize what that's going to do for us? And we got to get him in the clinic and now we're going to have to sedate him. I mean, what's going to go on? And it was just a simple thing where if I would have just done, you know, playing gut, fast absorbing something, we would have avoided that whole thing. And, you know, sure enough, it was quite a rodeo to get the sutures out when the patient came back. And so you just got to be aware of those things, cognizant of, you know, how it's going to be when you remove the suture and all that stuff. Right. So I guess one last more of a question I had when it comes to sutures is I know there's a bunch of different types of needle tips. Uh, you can also pick sutures that are like different, for example, three-eighth circle or half circle. I did read about some scenarios where you could prefer one over the other, but it seems like the vast majority of the ones that we tend to use are just three-eighths needles that are like reverse cutting. Have you ever had a scenario where you like wanted to pick something else or do we just kind of stick with that because it works? Personally, I have not. I've pretty much always done the three-eighths reverse cutting. I was going to also mention too that... In regards to suture type, when we started doing cosmetic surgeries at our program, I was kind of a little shocked to see that some of our surgeons, very, very prominent surgeons, Dr. Haddle, Dr. Um, Evans, were closing facelifts with fast-absorbing gut. And so if they can do that, these big, huge wounds, and close the skin with that, I was feeling pretty darn comfortable. Like, okay, yeah, this is perfectly fine to use for face slacks and different things going on, you know, because sometimes you may get into that thought of, oh, everything has to be closed with a non-resorbable. Yeah, no, to answer your other question, haven't really ventured into the other types of needles. Right. You have to be yeah, like a true connoisseur of different suture types to have to worry about that. <laughs> yes. In regards to technique, I would say one of the biggest things that... I realized that I wasn't doing really well after, you know, the first couple of years of residency is what we call squaring the knot. That is something that I think a lot of people understand and a lot of people don't get at first. Usually we do two throws and there's a way to pull the strings in a direction so that they lay flat on top of each other as opposed to coiled up on top of each other. And so if you straighten them out and make them flat and then you reverse the throw... And then you would have to pull the suture ends in the opposite direction so that those go flat and then lay down flat on top of the first flat ones you did. And that locks the knot in. I know this really sounds all very confusing. It's hard to do without a video or something. But something I was realizing too after you know a year or two in private practice was that you also have to be careful of what's going on you know, with your suture because you can do your two throws, pull it flat. But then if, let's say, you let go and the suture, you know, has that memory and it kind of springs back around a loose end or something, and if you're not paying attention to where that suture is going and you just do your throws and go back, you know, oftentimes those sutures had crossed, the ends had crossed and you weren't paying attention and now it's not laying down flat and things like that. So you really do have to kind of pay attention to that stuff. And if they, you know, flip back and cross, you have to pull the ends apart and then do your throws and then pull them tight. And so, 
little things, but important if you really want to square your knot and have that knot last for more than just a day or two. Yeah, no, for sure. I was in Denver a couple of weeks ago, you know, with you shadowing as part of my residency. I got some time off and I noticed how you did that. You know, you can see easily when a knot is flat both ways. I will say I have been guilty of sometimes like not remembering exactly which way I went and then you just start just like going and you know it's probably just like a clump down there. But I guess I always wondered like other than like looking nice and being smaller as a knot, have you felt that those ones last longer? They, you know, do better? Yeah, certainly. They're a tighter knot. And if you are a Boy Scout or have a history of being a Boy Scout, you know how serious knots are and how serious it is to lock them down by squaring them because that is just so much tighter and i've kind of gone quickly and not squared things and it's almost guaranteed when i'm not squaring it up and i'm just doing my throws willy-nilly i'll get the call either that night or the next day saying my suture just totally came undone i was just loose hanging in my mouth and what am i going to do now and they're panicking but if I take the time to square that knot, I swear I almost never get that call. And they're lasting at least five to seven days. Nice. Well, that's good to know. I mean, when I was in my first probably two months, I remember getting this call as a resident from a really angry old guy. He just lectured me for a solid like 10 minutes. I couldn't even get a word in about how the knot was on. First of all, it was on the wrong side because it was on the palate, not the buckle. He could feel it. His other surgery was on the buckle. And second of all, how he, he was playing with his tongue and he could tell it was getting looser every minute. It's definitely a thing. Like I've, how many times have I seen a patient who complains that, you know, someone did a suture and it got loose. So I think if we can do anything to help it stay tight, that's only going to help the patient have more confidence in the surgery. Because in reality, they don't know very much about what went down other than, you know, how much does it hurt afterwards? You know, how swollen are they? Did, does the stitches stay? That kind of stuff. Now, one thing that I've also heard like multiple opinions on is how many knots do you place? One of my mentors would tell me constantly, if you don't know how to tie a knot, probably referring to squaring it, then you should just tie a lot. And so (laughs) we'd have to do like six or seven throws just to guarantee it wouldn't come out. Now, I was looking online and like there's, I couldn't find an article that necessarily referred to just, you know, in vivo, you know, people had third molar surgery, how many came out. But there was an article where they just literally pulled on knots that they had tied. And in that scenario, they thought that you had to do four throws, which does sound kind of like a lot. Again, I don't know if that's necessarily relates to how many you have to do in the mouth, because obviously people aren't just yanking on the knots. What have you found? I mean, yeah, there's all sorts of things I've heard about that. Our director, Dr. Maloro, his thing was always to keep it simple. His rule was whatever the number on the suture is, so if it's 3-0 or 4-0, whatever that first number is, do that many throws. So if it's 3-0, he was like, do three throws. In his mind, that meant like three separate. So you do a double to the right, then you do counterclockwise or left, and then you do another one to the right. So he counted those as three, even though that first one you did two, and so on and so forth. So if you did a 4-0, and basically his... Yeah, thinking was that this, I guess the thinner the suture, the more throws you need to do, which I'm not sure where that thinking comes from, but it seems to make some sense. It certainly makes sense to me if you're using a monofilament, especially if it's non-resorbable, very smoother suture like nylon. Those, I think, are a lot more prone to 
come undone if you're not squaring them and not doing enough throws. So those, I would definitely say more squaring and more throws on a very smooth suture. Right. So I guess staying on this theme of the knots, you know, there's the mythical like perfectly tightened knot, right? Versus like the air knot where you like get it, you lift up the sutures to cut it and like your assistant looks and they can't even tell where the knot is because there's such a big like distance from the tissue to the knot. And I've heard, you know, a couple of different ways of preventing, you know, getting those air knots and making sure you can really cinch those down. Some of the ones I've been taught at least were making sure that when you do let go of the suture, when you're like doing your next throws, like let's say you put one knot in and you're going to start your second one, make sure that you don't tug on the suture with that hand as you're wrapping it around the the needle driver. Because when you tend to like tug on that, it loosens it up. And then, you know, I'm not sure whether it's that first knot you put down or the second one that's most important for keeping it tight. Sometimes I feel like it may be the second one, really cinching it down. But what techniques have you used to really make sure your knots are, you know, tight? Yeah, I mean, it's similar to what you're saying. I do two throws and pull them flat. And then I'm very careful not to put tension on the tail that's the looser end. Because, yeah, as soon as you start putting tension on that, the whole thing starts coming undone. And then being really careful not to do that, and you put the opposite throw, and you tighten that down. And once you got that second throw in place, um, and that's tight, then that's not going anywhere. Yeah, I think that just takes skill and attention, because there's some people who just aren't paying attention to the loose end of the suture, and they're pulling on it, and the whole thing's loose, and they're going super fast, and get the air knot. I like to go back to your other story about the buckle versus, you know, the pallet. I want to touch on that because especially, for example, when you're doing palatal surgery, taking out a mesiodens, for example, and you do that palatal flap or exposing bond, a palatal canine or something. When you're closing up that flap, the question is, do you want your knot on the lip side, you know, the labial or the palate? And my thought process was always, well, I should say this. At first, in residency, I thought, let's put on the palate because you can't see it, right? And it's so much better. When they smile, you don't see these big knots in their gums. But the more I got into it, the more I started saying it's better to do on the labial or the buckle because of like that guy that you were talking about. Their tongue is constantly playing with it, and the suture is going to come undone when it's on the palate because they're just gnawing at it you know like old beef jerky or something over and over and so for me personally nine times out of ten i'm putting that knot on the labial surface and you kind of have to think of it ahead of time you know you kind of have to think okay because usually you're passing it through the papilla and you're you know you're coming back so you have to kind of in your mind before you place it think okay i want to start on the the labial go through the papilla grab the palatal papilla come back to the labial and then tie it on the labial you know if you're going to do an interproximal suture there so just something to, to keep in mind a little bit of food for thought there and then the other thing we were going to talk about was the technique of running sutures you know if you're doing a long one let's say you do a full mouth extraction you got you know several extraction sites and you kind of reflect it and you have all that bone and you did alveoloplasty now you're closing it you know, how do you do that? Do you do it with interrupteds? Do you, do you do it running, running interlocking? What do you do? Yeah, so if it's a very large flap, usually what I was taught to do is it's a good idea to start with 
just one interrupted right in the middle just to make sure you get the tissue lined up, especially on the mandible when like if you have to kind of strip it a little bit and it's just really loose, it's helpful to sometimes put one single interrupted in the middle. And then what I'll do is go to the back and then using something either Chromic or Vicryl, usually Chromic, I'll just do a running all the way through. And I like to interlock them. To me, it seems like it just gets tighter. I mean, you can keep that tension on there a little bit better throughout the whole thing. And then sometimes, you know, I haven't done this a ton of times, but I was taught this technique by uh, Dr. Bradrick, who's an amazing surgeon. What he'll do is when he gets halfway, when you go to interlock it, you stick the needle through the loop, you know, how you go to interlock it. And before you cinch it down, you just stick it through the loop again. So it's like basically like double interlocked, if that makes sense. Then when you cinch it down, it's literally like a knot, but there's no tail. And then you can just keep going. The idea behind that, I guess, is that if one half, if it breaks somewhere along the line, you have some extra strength there in the middle to prevent it from loosening up. Now, I will say the one thing that I kind of ran into is if it is like a very bloody surgery and the suture starts getting sticky, you know how sometimes they get kind of sticky or dry? It's kind of hard to cinch those down if you, you know, do two passes like that. But other than that, you know, just close it all the way up using interlocking. And I have seen that work very well. Yeah, I definitely tend toward using running interlocking as well. That's kind of the way I was trained and it just seems, you know, good for me. I think the theory behind interlocking is that it kind of lines every suture up perpendicular to the wound line, I guess you could say, or, you know, the flap line. And so it just seems to me that it kind of lines things up a little better and as opposed to just straight running where it's more pulling the suture diagonally across each other. Something to think about. I think that the downside of the running interlocking is that, you know, you kind of are using more suture. And so there's more suture overall contacting the tissue compared to just doing running. And so maybe you could say, oh, well, that causes more inflammation because there's more suture touching the tissue. But I haven't had too much issue with that. So it seems to work for me. Anything else you want to discuss in regards to techniques? Just that sometimes when it comes to suturing, some of the more difficult cases that I've you know been a part of are getting primary closure on something that you had to advance the soft tissue. Let's say you put some bone graft on the buckle of a ridge, some sort of ridge augmentation, and now the flap that you had before is suddenly has to cover a lot more bone. It can be really hard to close those. And I think the key is making sure you did your flap right, large enough to advance, but then suturing. So everyone will say you need to have low tension on the free edge of the wound and it needs to be primary closed in situations like that. So what techniques have you tended on to use to achieve essentially those two things in those harder cases that it's difficult to close? You know, usually in my experiences when you're trying to pull really tight on a flap and it's, you know, getting really blanched and all this stuff and it's not coming together, Either the corners or the edges, you haven't released enough or you haven't scored the flap. Because for me, doing those two things, you know, even just tiny little millimeter cuts on the corner maybe pulls it closer. And then pulling up that loose flap and then scoring it so that that periosteum isn't so tight. You know, not a lot, but maybe three or four, you know, thin, really delicate cuts there with your 15 all of a sudden it's just super loose and longer of a flap than it was because you have that periosteum just holding you down. And so that usually doing those two things and, you know, isn't 
creates the flap that's not a problem to close primarily. Yeah, what are your thoughts on that? When you do get that, do you tend to just do some simple interrupteds once it's like nice and loose? You just a couple simple interrupteds and then you're good? Yep. One thing I've seen that people told me has been very helpful is if you're having some difficulty, obviously the tissue, like you said, needs to stretch. You know, the suture isn't going to necessarily magically make it stretch (laughs) like over a wound. But something that's helpful in keeping it tight is if you can throw some horizontal sutures a little bit away from that free edge, the horizontal mattress, when you tighten those down, let's say you do two or three of them, it pulls in such a way that it's not going to necessarily tear through the wound, but it takes off a lot of tension from that free edge. So that way, when you do go back and put your interrupted sutures, the idea is that you know, the tension isn't pulling right there on that spot that's trying to heal. It's a little bit further back in the flap. Yep. I like that. That's a good technique. Yeah. I think we've covered several things in regards to the basic suturing. Certainly that we're not exhausting every means of suturing. There's different types. There's horizontal mattress. You know, there's tons of different types of suture you can use needle types. Dr. Maloro could talk forever about doing nerve repair sutures, suturing where you're using loops and, you know, magnifying type equipment. And I remember one time we were doing that helping Dr. Maloro and he's using like an 8-0 suture. And we pulled three of them out of the pack. And as soon as we pulled it out, it just disappeared into thin air. And we're just like, what, where did it go? It's so thin. It's just like resorbed it. Dr. Mo was like, what the crap's going on? Just having the suture. Okay, hold on. Well, let's open another one. <laughs> so it's crazy how small and thin some suture can be. But I think this has been good. Anything else you wanted to add to the discussion of suturing? Let's see here. Well, one of the things I noticed when I was working with you is just the benefit of this goes back to one of your you like to harp on, which is the switching sides, right? Because I've noticed when you're suturing just from one side, I'm left-handed, for example. You know, there's a lot of different ways you can hold the needle driver to suture, but whether you're doing, you know, maxillary, mandibular, right, left, you know, if you're doing the anterior, you can hold it differently. There's just tons of different ways you can do it, which is great, but it gets a little more tricky for your assistant who's handing you your needle driver and a suture if they're going to be handing it to you in an efficient way, right? So I feel like when I stand on one side, it just gets way too complex for them to hand it to me properly, the suture, because I'm always flipping it, you know, the other way or upside down and back and forth. But what I noticed with switching sides is that since it's like a mirror image, hopefully this makes sense, but it seems like it's a lot more predictable the way that they hand you the needle driver, because you always can just go pretty much, you know, buckle the lingual for either hand since you're not having to hold it in a lot of different ways. Yeah, that's the one too that and I've talked about this on the podcast, but I'm really big on my assistants handing me things. And so, and that's like the hardest thing for them to learn. It seems like, or it takes the longest is to learn how to hand the suture with the needle pointed in the right direction because they have to visualize it in their mind and think, okay, he's going to go from whatever buckle the lingual, you know, or he's doing a bone graft. So he's going to go do the reverse where it's going inside the socket out to the buckle. Anyways, they actually can get it and learn it and hand it right. And it always brings me joy when they they do it the right way. But I think it's really important to do that. And then also, too, something I do is, like, let's say I right when I finish suturing number 32, and then I'm about to switch to the other side, I always, you know, mount the needle really quick to face that number 17 side going from buckle to lingual. 
And then I hand it to the assistant, they sit on the tray, and then when they hand it back to me, they don't have to fuss at all with the needle. It's already loaded perfectly. They just have to hand it to me in the right direction so I can put my hand into the, the holes of the needle driver, and then boom, just straight in, and then we're not fussing at all. So little things like that can help you. Oh, one more thing I was going to say is that I think a lot of people get super caught up with having the assistant hold the Minnesota for you while you're suturing. And it's like one of those things where you learn it initially and in your mind, you think there's no other way to do it. Like they have to hold it. What am I going to do? But there was a time when I saw one of my attendings in residency suturing and we just didn't have extra hand for someone to hold it. He just pulled out the Minnesota, you know, did the needle and then put the Minnesota back in and then, you know, kept going with the suture. And I was like, oh, I guess you, you can do that. And honestly, at times it almost seems to go quicker if my assistant's kind of caught up and they're holding a suction and they're holding this just to go out with the Minnesota quickly, fix it myself, go back in. It's not the end of the world and it's pretty quick. So just one of those things where you should be able to think outside the box if you don't have that extra hand readily available. Yeah, for sure. So one of the things that I just remembered when I was spending time with you, I saw you suturing, you know, bone grafts or just socket preservations or, you know, ridge preservation was the way that you sutured those differently, almost like reverse to what I have seen. And I actually hadn't seen that before. So I wasn't sure if it was like some ancient lost art or if it was just like some technique that you had found, which, you know, after watching it for a week or two, I totally agree that it's, you know, better than the way I do it. So could you kind of explain how you go about tying or I guess essentially just suturing those simple, you know, ridge preservations. Yeah. So, you know, when you're doing a third molar, you're going, let's say you're doing number 32. You just go straight from buckle to lingual. One pass is grabbing both of the flaps, right? Or both sides. You know, I learned in residency and saw one of our guys, he was kind of a private practice doc at Northwestern who I've had on that podcast, Dr. Olson. And when I saw him doing his bone grafts, kind of immediate implant suturing, he did the reverse. He would kind of go inside the socket and go from kind of the inner socket to the buckle and come out and then go back inside the socket and then go through the lingual flap. So if you looked at it from a frontal view, it's almost like a figure eight that's going in the socket, buckle, back into the socket, lingual, that back and forth. And I had never seen someone do that. And I kind of questioned him about it and was like, what's going on here? And he's like, oh, yeah, that's how we're supposed to do it. That's how everyone does it, you know, for those types of things. Because when you do it that way, the suture is pulling your membrane and your bone down into the socket. It's pushing everything down and taking your flaps and kind of squeezing the flaps into the socket. As opposed to if you were just to go try to go one pass from buckle to lingual. Of course, if you had a membrane in there, you're probably going to pop your membrane up it's going to get caught on your membrane it's going to be a mess so it's so much easier to do that reverse where you go in the socket first and then back out the buckle and also if you just do the one pass from buckle lingual when you squeeze the edges of the flap together they kind of pucker up and almost pushing out of the flap as opposed to puckering down into the flap i almost need a diagram to show you this and the more guys I've talked to in private practice, almost everyone is, seems to be doing it that way with bone grafts and immediate implants and things. So something that I found that really helped pull down everything into the socket, like the membrane and the bone. When I have done some of those, I feel like the way I was suturing before was doing like one of those 
crisscross or figure of eight from the top. And if I did like a call a plug or something, you know, assuming you don't dislodge it when you're going from buckle to lingual, which you have to be careful, I would cinch it down at the end. And it was almost like the call a plug was wanted to pop out so bad, but the crisscross was like, just like trying to wrangle it down. It was like poofing up and you're just like, uh, hopefully that stays there. Whereas when I saw you suture your way, which is, you know, passing from the inside of the flap out both ways, it looked completely different. You know, the call plug was tamed, you could say. It was pushed down and held in there. So I thought that was something kind of cool to see. Yep, for sure. Excellent. Well, I think those are all good points that we've discussed. Hopefully food for thought for a lot of our listeners to keep researching and looking at different techniques. If you have any questions, for sure, email us. You can email me or Jake. I'm Grant Stuckey at Gmail and he's Jake Stuckey at Gmail or just comment on our our Instagram or Facebook pages about some of the stuff. But really appreciate everyone listening and please give us some feedback on other topics you'd like to hear. And if you have other listeners who you think would be great candidates for the podcast, let us know and we will get them on here. Thank you, Jake, for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. See you again soon. All right. Talk to you later. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. If you are an oral and maxillofacial surgeon and would like to be on this podcast, please email me at grantstuckey at gmail.com or text me at 720-441-6059. Also, if you have any topics that you would like to hear discussed or feedback on a certain episode that has already aired, please call or email or text me. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode.